You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Warren. Is it Farrell or Farrell? Farrell. Farrell. Okay, good. So not like like the the actor, not the singer, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's not like Will Farrell. I'm not as funny as he is. Um, But the, (laughs) so the F-A-R-R-E-L-L and like Farrell's ice cream in the old days. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, so you are... um, You're a person that gets cited a lot, but I don't think people know who you are a lot too, right? So a lot of the research and data you've developed on, um, I guess, the, the adolescent to adult development of, uh, of boys and how it's affected by fatherhood and stuff like that, a lot of the research mm-hmm. came from a book you wrote called The Boy Crisis that was, uh, I believe, published in 2018. Is that right? That's correct. On both counts. So before we get into all of that, give me uh, your background. How did you, like, you, you were part of a second wave uh, feminist movement, I guess, uh, or, or, or party to that, and then kind of do, like, hey, we're leaving men behind. We need to figure this out as well. Uh, can you yes. wa- walk me through that whole process? Yeah, absolutely. When I was doing my uh, doctorate at NYU, um, the women's movement surfaced in the late 1960s. And um, I uh, was teaching at Rutgers and I was, um, you know, talking to my class about it. And they said, you know, Warren, you got fire in your belly. You should change your dissertation topic from um, some boring topic to uh, the women's movement. And I um, talked to my you know, counselors and they basically ended up agreeing. And then the law, um, I, so I did my doctorate on that. But in the process, um, I was researching the impact of the women's movement on men's attitudes and behaviors. Um, and so the, uh, but I joined the National Organization for Women in New York City. Uh, They were um, thinking about kicking men out uh, of the organization. There's a big debate. They agreed that if I could um, start some men's groups um, that they would, uh, and the men's groups were successful at getting men out of women's hair, so to speak, 
um, they would um, you know keep men in the um, group in uh, uh, letting them join now. So I did that and it worked really well. And they asked me to run for the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City. I did that and started speaking all around the world on the women's movement. Um, long story short, after a number of years of doing that, I started hearing increasing numbers of like teachers in Japan coming up to me and saying, you know, uh, Dr. Farrell, you, um, you know, I know you're talking about women, and, but you know, the people in my class that are having the most problems um, are the boys. And so I started hearing this in Australia, Canada, you know, all over the world. And I started to, that put, you know, boys issues on my radar. Um, but when I started to see that boys, um, the, there was, that there was a boy crisis and the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside, I brought that issue up to the, um, the National Organization for Women board and they froze. And they said, you know, Warren, uh, feminists uh, want the option to be fully um, involved with the children or partially involved and have the man, um, not in, the father not involved and to start a new life, to marry a new man, to move out of state if need be. And, um, and you know, and, and women, you know, know their children best. And, you know, why don't you, um, you know, just, you know, don't, don't get, you know, don't be publicizing that children need their fathers. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, the mother will know. And I said, that's not what the research is beginning to say. And again, I got this total silence. And I started to see that if I were to follow the research and um, and if the research did increasingly show that boys uh, needed their fathers so much and that I ended up finding out that so do girls for different uh, overlapping reasons. Um, I, as I started finding this out more and more, um, the, the, the feminist movement started to freeze me out, um, especially as I started talking about it. And even my audiences, they went from, you know, uh, you know, 100% standing ovations and about three to four referrals per speech uh, down to um, ultimately uh, no standing ovations and zero to one per, uh, referral per speech. And so, you know, I, I, I ended up losing ultimately, you know, um, uh, by speaking up on, on behalf of and continuing my research on behalf of uh, what, you know, why fathers were so necessary. Um, I, you know, it cost me maybe somewhere between 12 and $20 million. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> I mean, aside yeah, from the, a... aside from the uh, social implications, that's also not great. I mean, <clears throat> it does. It, I, the interesting thing about this is uh, this whole subject for me is the are, are the parallels between <clears throat> how we've treated men over the last you know sixty years or so and how we've treated uh soldiers right like it's mm -hmm. it's the expectation is that uh they're fine they'll take care of themselves right and it's uh, certainly true and it not not only uh, from institutions towards people but people themselves like soldiers don't they there's a culture of not asking for help i think men are the same way i mean there's jokes about it about not wanting to ask for directions if you're lost right um, right like it's somehow emasculating or something like that but <clears throat> it has been the case that men uh, uh are demonized quite a bit uh, you know, because of the actions of a few men over time, typically is, is how that's gone. Now, I, I, I too am a big believer in empowering women for this, but not, not in the way that modern American progressives would say, which is basically just revenge. You know what I mean? Uh, my, my viewpoint comes from 
research I've done personally and some things I heard from like people like Christopher Hitchens, for example, uh, in his discussions about <clears throat> second and third world countries, uh, he, he often liked to say that the best solution to some of these problems were to achieve uh, like some, something approaching egalitarianism in, in the workplace, right? Or maybe not in a specific workplace, but in the, the economy of the country at large. Because not only you're effectively doubling the contribution to your society at that point, right? Yes, Instead of excluding women, so it makes a lot of sense. But there have been, there's been a price to pay for that in some regard, right? Like the the, the divorce rate has gone higher, and we haven't mm-hmm. figured out. I still don't feel like we figured out an elegant solution to co-parenting, uh, particularly when we're in a an increasingly global economy, but also just domestically, we're increasingly uh, a work from home or work remote economy, which mm-hmm. means people move more than they usually would have before. And mm-hmm. that, that's a, that's a roadblock to that. So I'm not really sure. I haven't seen a whole lot of great, a whole lot of great solutions to this problem yet. I don't think the solution is to force people to stay married. Obviously that's stupid. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but the, the, the solution can't be just to have the female have uh, control and autonomy, and the male have no real say in the in the matter either, right? Correct. Yeah. So first of all, you have hit on four of the most important areas, and so um, whatever I leave out in the answer, um, so I don't drone on forever. Um, come back to that because the the things you put your fingers on speak so highly to the causes of the of the problems that are happening today. So start with. Um, the boys are falling behind girls in all 53 of the largest developed nations. The key word is the word developed. So where, uh, where the good news about capitalism is it, um, it is most of the developed nations have some degree of capitalism that have helped people survive and have helped people do much better than they used to do, particularly in the middle and upper middle classes. And so the societies have been able in those to give the to give people more freedom to divorce or not divorce, and so there's a, so with the freedom to divorce, which became increasingly great as survival was no longer no longer required people to be married forever. Mm. Um, that was good news when it came to freedom, but it was bad news when it came to family. So many people who couldn't communicate very effectively in their marriage and were just you know walking on eggshells all the time and their their marriage was ultimately a minimum security prison. Uh, they felt they were um, they, they, there was it was oh my God I'm not going to be ostracized by my parents my friends you know etc. If I get a divorce and so a huge increase in divorces, but with the increase in divorces. There was um, oftentimes we de- we developed a, a sort of a legal system where women had the right to the children and men had to fight for children. Right, and so that that often led to me getting people like myself getting calls to be an expert witness to help men uh, to help judges know why fathers were so important. But nobody was calling me um, to ask about why are mothers so important. That was assumed to be the case, and so fathers had to sort of fight for their importance. And the problem is that many of the times they they didn't have the money to do that to hire the lawyers and hire people like me to do that, and so they get left out of the family. And so what my early research found, and my recent research for the boy crisis has, you know, a thousand times stronger, um, was that there, there was 
um, that, that when children do not have contact with their dad after divorce, uh, the chances of them doing worse in every one of 70 different areas from suicide to depression um, to um, being more likely to drop out of school, to be more likely to add be addicted to drugs, to video games, to, for their IQs to go down, for their sperm counts to go down if they're boys, um, and on the IQs only if they're boys, um, for, their, uh, for them to be likely to die sooner. Uh, all of these things, the, the nightmares that we have for them to be disobedient, to drop out of school, to get worse grades, um, to, to be delinquents, to commit crimes, all of these things were far more likely to happen when dads were not involved. Now, you were you know, sharp enough to say, you know, what's the, we haven't worked on a solution, and that's exactly correct. There is a solution. Uh, first of all, we have to understand where the, that the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. So then let's ask the next question. Why don't dads reside there? And as you said, uh, we don't wanna make divorce illegal, I agree. So what do we do? We make communication better because the Achilles heel of all human beings is our inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. Mm. When we become defensive, uh, when a loved one gives us criticism, that makes our loved one have to walk on eggshells and worry about ever, you know, um, criticizing us. So they keep all their feelings and fears to themselves. And it, you know, builds up in a volcano and it comes out in one way or the other uh, through, you know, domestic violence, through drinking, through drugs, through withdrawal, for joining the church and becoming a hero to your community because you can't get any appreciation at home to getting your appreciation from your dog on, on and on. And so the, so all the, so my, number one solution and the reason I've spent 30 years doing couples co conducting couples communication courses um, is to get couples to be able to know how to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive so they're able to share what's really going on inside of them in the marriage um, and able to hear each other and make it safe for the other one to sh share what their feelings and fears are. Um, and then therefore make the, the, the couple have more intimacy and less likelihood to, for, for a divorce and therefore less likelihood to be um, disconnected sure. from the father. But even if the marriage were to fail, if you have that kind of infrastructure, then the co-parenting part must come easier, right? If you've established yes. those communications. Yes. The, the, um, what just happened, the first piece of good news in this country um, happened a few weeks ago uh, on this issue about the importance of co-parenting. Okay, so here's here's what happened. Um, Chris Sprouls was a speaker of the house in Florida, um, and he uh, uh, had three sons. He read the boy crisis a few years ago. Um, it was helpful. He felt it was helpful for him raising his sons. So he gave the boy crisis to both the the Democratic and Republican party leaders in the house that were that were on committees that were relevant to family issues. They, uh, they read the boy crisis and they, they got together, believe it or not, Republicans and Democrats got together and drew up a um, piece of legislation that was compatible to both. The, um, and the legislation was focused on identifying a fatherhood crisis because a fatherhood crisis meant that there, uh, and, to, and, they, and they, the legislation um, allocated $75 million worth of programs to be able to get fathers more involved and facilitate private uh, industry to um, help get fathers more involved, to inspire father involvement in the family, like we did uh, when, whenever we've had a war. 
um, we you know we we inspire male involvement mm-hmm. in that war, um, and we've never done that for father involvement. And so, so you're the, so you're talking about, I mean, uh, uh, messaging perhaps from a a five hundred one c three or something that's it's it's an aspirational marketing methodology to get people to to value fatherhood more than maybe they do now. Is that what you're talking about? That's one aspect of it is okay. the marketing. Another aspect of it would be developing. Florida has a number of very good um, fathers groups that are in both encouraging fathers, but also encouraging communication mm. um, between the father and the mother, and and you know, um, and so and teaching people how to be, you know, be more effective in marriage. So there isn't the divorces to begin with, but mo- but also very importantly, you know, that that fathers should have the option that that a mother and a you know, let's say a woman, many women come to me and they say, you know, I want to be a have it all woman. Um, I want to be able to be you know powerful in my career. I want to have children. I want to have a good marriage. Um, men can do that why can't women do that and i go whoa women can do that how 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 um and the answer is basically you can choose to marry a man who is not another provider protector type but you can choose if you're going to be uh if you want to break through glass ceilings and focus on your career uh then find a man who is not breaking through glass ceilings and focusing on um, break, or, you know focusing on his career as well um he is a, um, a nurturer connector type mm. of man who's happy to be involved with the children but and that will work if you respect him for being involved with his children the one of the fastest ways to make a marriage fall apart is for a man to earn no money um but the uh, but if a woman says I want to be focused on earning the money. I want you to be supporting me. I want you to be focused on raising the children. And I will respect and honor you and love you more deeply as you do that effectively, which you will. Um, that, then, then those types of marriages where the key element is the woman respecting the man who gets involved with the children, uh, maybe doesn't earn money or maybe experiments privately to start start a company on the side, um, but is not is or isn't successful those marriages work extremely well on three levels. The woman does become a have-it-all woman. Moms very rarely do neglect their children's birthdays or recitals or so on, so the children don't feel completely disconnected. Mm -hmm. Children raised uh, predominantly by dads do extremely well, um, better on average than anything else except being raised about equally by mother and father. and so there, um, and uh, the mother, um, if she respects the man, has a, usually ends up having a good marriage, and the children are usually raised very effectively. Um, and so this is these are solutions uh, that are viable that Florida will hopefully be uh, implementing using a seventy five million dollars wisely. Let us hope. Um, and 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 so that is. You know, the first example of the nation that has really um, put its their fingers on the issue uh, through the work of, you know, the Chris Browles and I hopefully reading mm. The Boy Crisis was inspiring to him. Yeah, yeah. I, it's um, there. There's some there's a lot of data in this book, which uh, I'm a big fan of. I like stuff like that because I it's like I enjoy seeing the data and seeing the conclusion uh, the, the writer comes to, and then, uh, you know, maybe expanding on that finding, maybe there's more going on there. I I wonder what it is about. There's a direct correlation between, um, 
fatherless homes and uh, uh, men dying younger. Um, what yes. can is is there more to that? What why is that? Yes, basically, um, men and fathers and mothers have different styles in, in raising their children, and um, and so I'll, I'll go into some of those different styles in a minute. Um, but the um, the but here's just a piece of science for somebody who's into science. Um, when uh, a large number of children and uh, parents were um, uh, studied. Uh, when the children were nine and a half years of age, because the previous um, findings had shown that uh, when you're about nine, nine and a half years of age, uh, the length of your telomeres, that is the little inside of every cell, there are many, many te telomeres. And in those telomeres are, are uh, little uh, genes that um, indicate that if they're, if they're long and they're multiple and they're healthy, uh, they make the telomere longer and the longer your telomere, the more, the, the greater, the longer you're likely to live. So uh, as a side finding of a study about telomeres and parental involvement, um, the scientists found uh, that children who had um, father involvement as well as mother involvement, when they were nine and a half years of age, had telomeres that were 14% longer than those that did not have um, father involvement. But, or and, they found that the telomeres of the boys with father involvement were yet again, 40% longer than the girls. So the father involvement had this huge impact on the predictable life expectancy of, of a child as early as nine and a half. Mm. So this is just a little bit of the brain science on, on this issue. And there's a lot more to, to that. But then the next question that, that oftentimes people say, well, I don't get it, Warren. You know, what, what do dads do that's different from what moms do? And, and is that good or bad? So for example, you know, I, I'm, mom's talking to me now. And she says, you know, uh, my, 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 my father, my, the father, or my husband, he tends to do things like roughhousing with the kids. And mm -hmm. oftentimes, you know, I see, I see him getting ready to roughhouse and I'm saying, oh my God, I feel like I have just one more child to monitor here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and the dad, let's say, takes his, you know, like I was talking to Chris Sprouls about this, you know, he takes his three sons and he throws them, let's say on the, uh, the couch. I'm just making this, this is not a Chris Sprouls um, example per se, but he throws his three sons on the couch. And, um, and the, the three sons jump uh, and he says, all right, here's the game. Uh, the three of you jump off, get on, onto my back. And your job is to pin me down before I pin you down. Okay, dad, I love it. I love it. And mother is going, okay, the kids seem to be very excited, but I have just this fear that, you know, the sooner or later somebody's going to get hurt and maybe he'll learn his lesson if somebody gets hurt and stop this, but maybe I'll be wrong. I don't want to be controlling. I feel kind of guilty um, that he, has, he doesn't spend more time with the kids anyway. So, all right, I'll let it go. I don't want to be controlling. I don't want to be controlling. I don't want to be controlling. <laughs> she sort of refrains herself from interfering. And then, the, and then the kids, you know, get into this, you know, big rough housing and the dad is just about ready to pin all three of them down. And one of them, um, you know, one of the kids, uh, you know, pokes his sister, let's say, uh, or his, his other brother in the eye, and the father stops the roughhousing mm -hmm. um, and says, you know, that you, you can. Uh, and, and one of the kids starts starts crying. And the mother, in the meantime, is going, "Oh my God, I knew something was going to happen. Now I'm feeling guilty because I didn't interfere like I thought I should. I just had this instinct. I should have paid attention to my instinct." And dad is going, okay, you know, so Jimmy, if you put your elbow in your sister or brother's eye again, uh, you're, you know, that's going to be the end of the roughhousing. Okay, dad, I won't do that. 
And then they go back to the roughhousing. Mom's thinking to herself, you know, what is this? Um, you know, did he, did, he didn't learn his lesson by the fact that somebody did get hurt. Um, dad goes back to the roughhousing. And the next time some version of that happens again, uh, somebody pushes somebody aside too roughly. And dad says, that was too rough. Uh, we're going to end the roughhousing here tonight. And, oh, no, dad, you told us it's too rough. We won't do that again. Sorry, roughhousing is going to be not until tomorrow night or the night after. And mom goes, wait a minute, twice in a row, uh, you've, you know, you've done this, um, you've, you've seen that the children get hurt, and now you're still scheduling a time to do it again. You must be a boy after all, not a man. And so the, um, and, but, but what nobody understands, even, and the man doesn't explain, so moms can't hear what dads don't say, is that the next night that they do the roughhousing, now the kids know something crucial, which is when dad says, I'll stop the roughhousing when you're too rough, then the, the gears change. Mm-hmm. Now the child knows that if they don't stop the, being too rough, if they, if they are being aggressive and not assertive, if they're not thinking of their sister's or brother's feelings, they're going to lose what they want, the roughhousing. So they're beginning to learn and nobody explains this, and I talk about the data behind this in the boy crisis, they're beginning to learn empathy. That is, I have to think of somebody else's feelings and pain besides my own Mm. in order to continue getting what I want. What I want is the roughhousing, so I'm forced to think about somebody else's needs besides mine. I'm also losing my roughhousing if I'm too aggressive. What is aggressive? Ah, what I just did was too aggressive. What is not aggressive? Okay, that's assertive. And the experience of roughhousing and seeing what is and isn't too aggressive and losing the option to be aggressive, that teaches the children, the, that gives the children the experience of the difference between assertiveness and aggressiveness sure. and, is, is, and is statistically connected to a child becoming more empathetic. Well, imagine a dad going up to a mom and saying, I want a rough house with the kids. It'll make them more empathetic. Yeah. Like that's about the last connection you'd possibly, the most right. counterintuitive connection you'd probably make. And this is why it's so important for dads to read up about what they unwittingly do. And there's, you know, there's dozens of examples in the boy crisis, crisis like this, like teasing, like taking risks. These are all things that are very productive for a child's postponed gratification, mm-hmm. for a child's empathy, for a child's brain development. Uh, when children climb trees and take risks climbing trees, it could give them a concussion. But when there's checks and balance parenting, when the mothers and fathers negotiate how far up the tree that the child can climb um, and still be permitted to do that, and the dad is underneath the tree protecting the child if the child falls, the child doesn't only get protection that the mother is more likely to advocate, but the child also gets the ability to increase his or her IQ by constantly having synapses develop in the brain that and fired that, that connect different um, learning experiences and, and intelligence experiences about what is too safe, what is too risky, and having to, to embed that type of thing in the brain. Sure. And so sure. dads have to know about these things because moms can't hear what dads don't say. Yeah. And, yeah. and dads can't hear, dads can't say, things that they don't read about and um, and parenting magazines 
and uh, books that I had read had, had not explained these things. And so that's basically the reason it took me 14 years to do the research on the boy crisis. Sure, yeah. All right, Dr. Farrell, give me just a minute and do some ads uh, so we can keep this show on. Uh, right now, GhostBed is offering 40% off GhostBed bundles where you get a mattress and adjustable base in the same order. Uh, or you, anything else you add to it, sheets, pillows, uh, they've got the weighted blanket now. They've got, obviously, the mattress protector if you're, you know, clumsy or dirty. Uh, any of that stuff, you can add on to your mattress and adjustable base to get 40% off. For everything else, 30% off. Use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. You can get a mattress for like 25 35 bucks a month, zero down, zero financing for up to 60 months. Uh, and again, they've got the best products, 20-year, maybe a 25-year warranty if you're lucky. Uh, a lot of the products... Uh, uh, a lot of the mattresses now have 25-year warranty. They're all cooling. So if you're a big, sweaty bastard like me, you're going to need that. Uh, the sheets, pillows, mattresses, they all cool you off. So again, go to ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Get those deals. You know them. You love them. Uh, next up, Babbel. B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Uh, we're planning on... You know Benny, the ticket guy, um, while well, he lives in Mexico half the time and up near Dallas the other half, uh, we're planning on going down to see him a little bit. And before that, I'm going to brush up on some of my Spanish language uh, for all of your summer travels, whether you're going abroad or staying domestic and want to immerse yourself in the culture. Now is the perfect time to start Babbel. Babbel is a language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. That's quite a bit. Uh, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson. It used to be 15. Now they're, now they're 10. Uh, you can do as many lessons in a day you want. Uh, you know, you, it, you can start having real conversations in, in about three to four weeks. Uh, other language learning apps use AI, artificial intelligence for the lesson plans. Babbel is designed specifically by native language speakers from that country uh, that, that are experts in, in, in curriculum. So their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Uh, plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology will make sure that your pronunciation and accent don't sound dumb. So there are many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, video stories, and even live classes where you can interact. There's a 20-day money-back guarantee if you don't like it, but I assure you will. So right now, save up to 60% off your subscription when you go to B-A-B-B-E-L, babbel.com slash American. That's babbel.com slash American for up to 60% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. I mean, I, there, there's other elements to this as well. I mean, the the one, one thing you mentioned um, during the brain, like the early brain development stage, associating the expectation of a beneficial result with some kind of effort or time spent or something probably could go a long way in our current society, right? Because that's not really the expectation now. It's, I want it now, and if I don't get it now, I'm going to blame somebody else for it or lose my mind or play the victim or whatever. That's, that's become quite common. The other part of that is <clears throat> with, the, with the roughhousing, solving conflict like conflict resolution is a is it might be the most important thing that human beings learn at an early age how to resolve conflicts at the lowest possible level for a number of reasons one 
so they can learn how to take managed risk, right? Which is, you know, anybody that's successful in life has taken managed risk to get there. Um, <clears throat> another part is uh, uh, to, as you said, develop empathy. Certainly, that's part of it. Understand how strong you are and how much you can affect other people. Uh, and then the third one, I, which I think might be uh, pretty connected to the lifespan situation is uh, the management of stress as well, right? So learning to manage risk and learning to manage stress are not dissimilar. And it is, it's either going to be stress or UV radiation that kills you probably, right? If you're a human being. Uh, if you're a human being in America, it might be overeating and stuff. But for the most part, bottling in stress, not knowing how to communicate it, uh, not having the wherewithal or the confidence to share uh, what's bothering you and figure out ways to solve it. Like conflict, res resolving conflict. If you're, whether it's with your family or, or in the workplace or wherever it happens to be, if you're incapable of, I guess, articulating what's wrong, even if you're wrong about what's wrong and then you get corrected by somebody, but if you're, if you are, if you can't articulate or have the confidence to, to have these conversations, these low level risky conversations, then you, you end up having some much more aggressive and potentially dangerous conversations down the road. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's, once again, you put your fingers, you have, you have an intuitive gift of being able to put your fingers on the most important things. So one, number one is like let's let's develop something called right here in the show the new PC. Mm. Uh, it shouldn't be the old the old PC is re, the restriction of almost all freedoms to keep your mouth shut about certain things, don't offend anybody, etc. That has a huge amount of um, human harm. But let's not focus on that now. The new PC is postponed gratification and communication. So the the most important single predictor of life success or failure is your ability to develop postponed gratification. Um, the, that happens with two, two things are very important in that. One of the things that dads contribute in general to parenting, and sometimes moms contribute this more than dads and dads contribute it less. But as a rule, one of the reasons children do so much better when there's a dad as well as a mom in the family is that a dad is more likely to say something like, um, we were giving the example of the, of the roughhousing. Mm. <clears throat> the dad saying, if you don't, um, if you do that again, if you're too aggressive again, if you put your um, elbow in your sister or brother's eye, eye again, they will, that will be the end of roughhousing. Moms say the same type of thing, but the difference between dads and moms on average is that the dad, when he says that, if the child doesn't obey that, is likely to end the roughhousing, the mom is more likely to reinforce it by verbally not end the roughhousing, give the children another chance. Children will, will ignore a mom or dad talking about something um, and threatening the end of the roughhousing if they don't follow through with it. They also lose the respect for the parent mm -hmm. who says the roughhousing will end um, and they don't follow through with it. That's really interesting. Even at that young of an age, an effectual leadership is completely unrespected by anybody involved in that equation. Like even at yeah. four or five years old, it's really interesting. Absolutely. Even younger than four or five, um, you know, part of the t terrible twos, you'll mm -hmm. see a difference between terrible twos and non-terrible twos uh, with parents who have, uh, who uh, have good boundary enforcement. Um, when they say, if you, you know, if you don't, if you don't eat this spinach, you can have dessert. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, or if you don't eat these, these peas, you can have dessert. And then, 
the the, the child, let's say, um, is <clears throat> convinces the mother somehow that they um, that they've had a bad time or they're upset, um, and they should have don't have to have peas this time or have a few fewer peas, um, and the mom gives in. The child learns at a very intuitive early age, I can manipulate my mother or I can manipulate the father that gives in. The one that says, no, I'm sorry, I, I'm not yelling at you, but you, we have a deal here. My, I told you that there's no ice cream until you finish your peas. You didn't finish your peas, there's no ice cream. Um, and and the, then the child that learns to focus his or her ten, attention on finishing those peas that creates postponed mm. gratification. And when children are raised predominantly by dads, um, only 15% of them uh, manifest ADHD, attention de deficit hyperactivity disorder. When they're raised predominantly by moms, 30% have ADHD. Mm. One of the reasons for that is moms will usually be more empathetic about the circumstances um, that the child can call upon to have him or her finish fewer peas in order to get the ice cream. So the children learn to be um, to figure out, to focus on what manipulation um, will most get my mom to let me have fewer peas before I get the ice cream. Whereas with dads, the kids go, I, you know, if, if dads are more likely to say, if you keep complaining like that, there'll be no ice cream tonight or tomorrow night. Right. Yeah. And the, yeah. then the kid goes, okay, I have no option here, but to focus on finishing my peas, um, not instead of hyperactivity right. um, deficit, they have um, focus um, and, they, and they're required to focus as a result of that um, boundary enforcement. It feels and like so this, would, this would compound generationally too. I mean, part of the postponing of gratification from the parent's perspective is not giving the child what they want immediately to stop the crying or to make them like you or whatever the case is, or to, to stop the the friction between you, right? Just to give them what yes. they want. Uh, so the, I, you would assume that if someone doesn't learn that early and unless they put some real effort into training themselves to postpone mm -hmm. gratification, they're going to become the type of parent that just says, uh, I just let them eat the French fries instead of the apples or whatever the case is. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it seems like it compounds with each new generation. Yes. Um, you know, what we now are learning more and more about <clears throat> is how the behaviors that we develop as we grow up um, are deep into deeply embedded in our nervous system and our brain system and in our, um, our, 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 in our gut and, and seem to transfer to our children. Um, so our children often have the inheritance of you know, the, the behaviors, the attitudes that we have, and you know, we never knew this before. And so the, this type of science is really fascinating. And if, you're, if, you, if you have a younger child in your home and she or he wishes to go into um, some area of science, this is a very um, potent, has a, has a huge um, area of uh, potential um, growth for, the, for, your, for your child's future. Um, so yes, so uh, that, that, that takes care of a little bit. Um, this is the tip of the iceberg of the issue of postponed gratification and the importance of the connection of postponed gratification to boundary enforcement and the tendency on the part of fathers to feel better about enforcing boundaries, even when it produces crying on the part of the child. 
um, and moms will tend to sort of be more manipulated by crying. This is not perfect gender stuff. Sometimes a dad will have a, a you know a pretty little daughter, and he'll let the you know the daughter will you know um, you know sort of have him you know wound around his fingers. And uh, but dads tend especially to do this with sons. We're much more strict with our sons than we are oftentimes with our daughters. We don't want our daughters to cry to a greater degree. The second issue is communication. Um, that that the the importance of parents communicating is best done. I, I gave an example before of, of the training that we need to do that I do in my couples communication courses um, to for people to be able to hear personal criticism without becoming defensive. However, um, in the Boy Crisis book, I almost every issue that comes up, I talk about how that can be handled at a family dinner night. Mm. We've read the research that family dinner nights are healthy, health, healthy and make for better families. Yeah, However, I've seen that it's something like uh, if you do it once or twice a week, it doesn't have to be like every night, but like a couple of one or two times a week. And that makes a huge difference in how your family communicates. It makes a huge difference. And there is a caveat. Um, some family dinner nights turn into family dinner nightmares. Um, and they turn into family dinner nightmares because, um, and so what I, what I do in the Boy Crisis book is develop a whole system of guidelines as to how to prevent family dinner nights from um, becoming family dinner nightmares. One, aside from the, the methods that I talk about, about making sure there's no electro electronics at the table, which have a great deal of, to do with boundary enforcement and knowing exactly how far you can take, making sure that you, the parent, make sure there's no bound um, electronics at the table at family dinner night. What you do the other nights is a more complex issue. Uh, this, but the um, family dinner night, one of the biggest breakdowns of family dinner nights is, let's say that you, you ask your son or daughter how things go in school, went, went in school. And they start saying something, oh, you know, Jimmy is taking drugs and on the playground and stuff like that. But I kind of like Jimmy. He's really great. And the parents are looking like, oh, my God, wait a minute. You're going to get involved with Jimmy. And he's, you know, he's taking drugs, you know, uh, and the eyes of the parents, you know, um, dilate and the, the body language changes. And the, and the boy or girl talking about Jimmy on the playground and drugs um, no longer feels free to elaborate. It is so important for everybody at family dinner night to be able to share whatever she or he wants to share without any overt interruption verbally, but also covert interruption of disapproval in the eyes or body language. Sure. Yeah. And or, the, or passive aggressive comments and things like that. Probably. I mean, exactly. I, in my head right now, I'm just ima imagining every Sunday dinner uh, from the show, the Sopranos where they just all start yelling at each other mm -hmm. and somebody leaves. Right. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and, that, and, that, and, and that also, you know, one hint of a really important need to family dinner night, let's say you have teenagers and so on, and you hear them talking on and on to their, 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 girl, their daughter, to, your, to a girlfriend, mm. um, but then they come to, to dinner and you ask them a question, they give you half, half answers or, you know, three, set, three, word, three word answers like, oh, it's all fine. How did the soccer game go? Oh, it went good. Mm. Uh, what was there about the soccer game that went well? Oh, we won, um, you know, that type of thing. But yet when they're talking to their boyfriend or um, you know, girlfriend, they're going on and on. So you know that there's something inhibiting them um, at family dinner night from talking. So once you get to that, get that part of it, and I can't elaborate on the whole thing, mm. there's another dimension of family dinner night that often is it's very destructive. Wonderful, caring, empathetic, loving parents 
oftentimes put the emphasis on listening to their children and empathizing with their children. However, when empathy is a one-way street, what the children learn is that it's their privilege to be empathized with, not their need and their responsibility to also empathize with the parent. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's ultimately just a lack of accountability, right? It's a lack of accountability, and it's also a lack of um, uh, just as we go around the table here, you, daughter, son, you had you know six minutes to share what was going on with you, to um, and we asked we one of us at the table uh, table one or more of us at the table shared that what we thought we heard and we made sure that we didn't distort anything. Mm-hmm. Now it is your turn. Mom and dad are speaking. Here is our perspective on Jimmy and the drugs at the playground. When we're talking, we expect you to not interrupt us to not show dismissive body language, to not walk away from the table, to not look bored. Just like you wanted us to be attentive and really hearing the best intent of what you're saying, you are required to do that for us. Right. I mean, a good good lesson to learn there is that if you uh, are irritated by people who suck at driving or people who can't have normal conversations without... Uh, abandoning the principle of charity and immediately taking what you say at the worst possible uh, meaning then maybe raise children on your own that don't do that. Right. That's a, that's a pretty good solution to that problem. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you made, um, I want I also want to come back to oh, sure, something yeah. about veterans, veterans that you said before. Sure. Um, shall I do that first? Or do you want to do, do your question? Uh, let's, for... let's bring it up in a minute after this. Cause I want to work. We're, we're, sure, we're kind of in line here. So you bring up a good point in some of the stuff I've read um, <clears throat> which is that um, children raised primarily by single mothers not only miss out on masculinity at home, they typically miss out on it in primary education because those are primarily female teachers, like 70-something percent, right, are female teachers. Yeah, um, more than that, yes. Where in the child's life, from, from the research you've done, where in the child's life has... have have we identified where we can supplement masculinity? I mean, there's some obvious answers like sports and stuff like that. Uh, Obviously there's uh, boys and girls clubs and stuff like that as well. Uh, Mentorship programs, but you know, for a single mother to be able to work a full-time job, make breakfast and dinner for the kids and blah, blah, blah. There isn't a whole lot of time left to be an Uber for the kid to go to these after-school activities and stuff, right? I feel yeah. like we're, uh, we, we, we've identified the problem, but just blaming the person involved without helping them seems like kind of a dick move, to be honest. And yeah. we, we're not doing a lot <laughs> to help these people. So uh, I assume you've got some solution to this. Yes. First of all, I really want to say be, before I start, there's probably no one that works harder than a single mother. Mm-hmm. My, my wife just went into surgery um, and I took care of her for the last couple of weeks and taking care of my own work and taking care of her. And it just sort of reminded me of, you know, the, the, the amount of effort it is to take care of, not just, you know, my wife's a very responsible adult. And when you have two or three children, you know, running around who you might, whose you know, every move might jeopardize their safety. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to watch that as you're trying to prepare a meal, as you're trying to, you know, take care of, uh, if, and if you're in addition to that working, my God, no one can explain the amount of tension and, and stress 
uh, that that must create. And it also creates uh, many uh, working mothers also feel very um, sad that they're not doing as good a job as they can, uh, as, the, as they know they could if they were raising their children full time and uh, not doing as good a job at work um, mm. if they could if they were working full time. And so they're caught between, constantly caught between a rock and a hard place. Okay, so solutions. Um, the most important single thing for a, a, a mom raising a child to understand is that dads, all men, go will do as much as die if they are told they are needed, if they are known how they're needed. The proof of that, or the illustration of that, is every generation had its war. Mm. In every generation's war, the government or Uncle Sam said, we need you to be willing to die, to, to, to sacrifice your life, to be disposable, so others would survive. And men came forward to do that. Um, and um, millions of men came forward mm -hmm. to do that. Um, and so we, we men are programmed <clears throat> biologically and through, and through socialization to when they're told they're needed and wanted and you are specific about what you value about a man's contribution, mm -hmm. like boundary enforcement, if you understand from the Boy Crisis book, the value of teasing up to a point when, you're, when you prevent it from becoming too much teasing, um, the value of taking risks up to a point, how important it is for the child to have the biological father because the biological father is half of the genes of the, of the, of the child. Mm. And when she or he looks in the mirror, and sees the body language or the eyes or the hair of the of the father as well, especially for the son, um, that this th this child that does not have the father, particularly the son, uh, often feels like um, like he doesn't know that half of himself. He feels lost. He feels rejected and abandoned. In addition to not knowing himself, and so if you are able to study what. Your, you know, what there is about that roughhousing, that teasing, that risk-taking, uh, the types of things that dads tend to do um, almost naturally, and let your the, the biological dad know you've read about that, you respect that now in a way that you didn't before, you know, uh, you know why boundary enforcement leads to postponed gratification. Mm -hmm. You know why that leads to empathy um, and your, your children are being disobedient and coercive and you'd like to have dad back in their life. Most men will come back. Men, I ran for governor of California and I spoke to prison populations. And when I explained all this to prisoners, almost all of these prisoners were dad deprived boys, about 85 to 90 percent. Mm -hmm. But the prisoners came up with me, muscles like I'll never have, tattoos said to me, you know, um, you know Dr. Farrell, I never uh, realized how important I was. I thought I was, you know, I was the loser. I was going to be in jail for life. I want to get out of jail now because I know I can offer something to my children to prevent them from going the way that I went. So that's number one. Uh, don't underestimate um, the importance of a dad, know, the biological dad, knowing how important he is. Number two, 
Um, yes, get your child involved in sports, but get your child involved in three types of sports. In team sports, that helps your child know how to get, uh, get along in an organization and respond positively to supervision. Get your child involved, encourage your child to be involved in pickup team sports. Take your child to the playground. If at the right age, leave him or her there. Let them play. Maybe they'll get into a fight. Maybe something wrong will happen. But the, the child who's left at a playground for pickup team sports learns how to select people that are healthy to play with or doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can work with them on what were the red flags that led to a fight or led to uh, something negative happening on that playground. Um, what the pickup team sports are a perfect preparation to be an entrepreneur because you have to create everything from the beginning. Is the basketball court going to be full court, half court? What's going to constitute a foul? What is it? Who do who who says to me? You know, Dan says to me, I, I can I can shoot a basket from my angle, pass it over to me. Um, I three three times in a row he made the basket. Okay, I can trust Dan. Uh, three times in a row he didn't make the basket. Okay, maybe not. Um, so all these things are learned from pickup team sports. Number sure. three is um, is sports where your child has to do that that sport largely on his or her own gymnastics tennis uh, swimming uh, where there is a team um, but the effort is predominantly the the self-starting um, of the child that's what i call the liberal arts of team sports mm-hmm. now within that framework get to know the ch- the coaches that your child has that your child seems to to find uh, appealing or, or find a kinship with. Seek out that coach. Let your coach know that your child is um, uh, being raised, uh, need, need, does not have a biological dad around. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, that, that just taking your son aside for a few minutes and saying, you know, this is special about you. Uh, you, you have a talent here or you have an attitude here, or you have a way of getting along with people here. This is special about you. Children, especially children without dads, have a real need for a role model male uh, that you select to do that. That's number, so that's sports. Let's go to faith-based issues. Mm. Mom, no matter what your faith is, it really makes no difference. Um, Go, uh, and even if you are an atheist, find a faith-based community for your child um, that it comes closest to what you you you, you believe and um, and make sure you select that faith-based community largely um, based um, on some type of minister priest rabbi umam uh, that is um, that is willing to get children of your son's age together with other children of, of, of his age and have them talk about their feelings and their fears confidentially with an absolute um, ironclad condition that nothing that is said in the group will ever be repeated outside of the group. That will allow your son to see that the the insecurities and fears that he has are shared by other boys in that group that enormously increases your son's security. Another alternative, get your son involved if he's the right age with uh, Cub Scouts. Mm -hmm. Cub Scouts have scientific studies that have shown that Children that attend Cub Scouts for two or more years consistently, in, they increase in every measure, metric of, of, of character development. And I don't know any mother that doesn't care about the child's character, mm-hmm. his or her child, children's character. Um, 
Second, Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts um, read in the Boy Crisis book how Boy Scouts have consciously or unconsciously, I don't know which, they have deconstructed masculinity in such a way as to bring forth the best of masculinity uh, rather than the worst. If you worry about the um, you know, aspects of the Boy Scouts, check them out for yourself, get yourself assured about it. Um, but the Boy Scouts have, a, a, have, have an enormous possible contribution. Um, boys clubs um, have an enormous, they're, they're developing increasing programs, uh, numbers of programs to be helpful to, to boys and to mentorship programs. There's boys to men mentorship programs. Um, there are um, programs that are of like MKP, the Mankind Project. There's the Men's Ultimate Weekends. Um, so uh, do some research on that. I mentioned all those things in, in the Boy Crisis book. Sure. Those are great. I mean, certainly some, uh, I mean, not every kid's going to like sports, I guess, right? So there's always going to be issues. But there's, a, there's plenty of other groups um, that you can try to get involved with. I wonder, too, what at that early of an age, uh, uh, what the what the testosterone level of the child has, uh, how much effect it has. I know it, like the, the latest data we have from 2019 is that uh, the average 21-year-old American male has the same level of testosterone that a 67-year-old would have had in 2001. Um, That's that, about right. And the, so one of the impacts on that is the um, sperm count reduction, for mm -hmm. example. Um, the sperm count of boys, of males, has gone down 60% since the late 80s. Now you say, all right, sperm count, abstract, in out of your ears. Mm. But the sperm count has an impact on the fertility of your children and the health of the, of the children that are produced by your son and his future wife or woman friend. And so that is, that's not only an impact on him, um, but it's also an impact on the family's production of the next child and the next child's generation and the next generation. So these are just a few of the multiple examples of, of that. Now, if your son isn't into sports um, and uh, just make sure he does some type of exercise, mm -hmm. exercise is one of the most important developmental, you know, I, I was, I was into sports, but, um, but what, you know, one of the things, but I was also into alone sports like track. And I, so I ran track competitively. I didn't even know it at the time, but, you know, physical activity is an absolute essential, not only to losing weight and things that we associate it with, it's an absolute essential to brain development. And it's an essential to being able to study more effectively. The mm -hmm. Center for Disease Control found that the amount uh, that after a small amount of studying, um, it, is, it is more helpful to do uh, uh, each minute of research, I'm sorry, not research, recess, each minute of recess where physical activity is involved produces better scores on tests than additional, the equivalent number of additional minutes studying. So mm -hmm. studying is important, but when you do, when you're doing more than, when you're doing more than a little studying, it's important to balance that with physical activity in order to maximize not only your health, but also your ability to study more effectively. Hmm, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, just uh, before uh, we wrap, I want to, I want to adjust the word crisis in the, in the title of the book. Everything's a crisis these days. Everybody says, well, this is, we got this crisis, this crisis. 
Um, <clears throat> just just some quick data uh, for those who might think that that's hyperbole. Boys in America are now graduating high school at about this uh, at a similar rate. Like boys as an entire group are graduating high school at a similar rate uh, as troubled students now, right? People that have some kind of learning disability or bad home life, just boys in general are completely <clears throat> captured to the same degree that the, that this underprivileged group is. Um, and one thing we've known for quite a while that still I don't think is, is a widely held belief for some reason. Uh, it, it was the case for a lot of human history that poverty was the number one predictor of crime. But in America, uh, since data from the 1960s, actually, the number one predictor of criminal pathology is a fatherless home to a, I mean, like a wide margin. It, it, it's, yes. it's, it's higher than poverty or anything else. Um, yeah. and, it, and it, as anything would, right, hurts underprivileged communities more. So um, the uh, inner city crime emanating from predominantly 25% of the black male populations uh, grew up in dad-deprived homes. That's old data. The new data is that it's now 70%, in excess of 70%, actually. So 70-plus percent of crime in inner cities are committed by one group of people, and that is a group of people whose fathers have been taken away from them or who haven't stepped up. It's one of those two things, yeah. right? Yeah. Like none of these other, the racial thing isn't there. The poverty yeah. thing isn't a predictor anymore. It's just the dads. Yeah. Well, yes. So let me be really quick. First of all, you're 100% right. And if somebody here is sort of in favor of making governments that's listening here is, is in favor of making government smaller, you want to make government smaller, you get dads more involved. Mm -hmm. uh, the more you, you, get, you get dads involved, the more you not only um, are less likely to create criminals, to say nothing of the, think of the mental health expenses that, that we spend in the country, um, on making sure that people who are criminals usually have mental health problems and solving those problems, to say nothing about the crimes they commit, to say nothing about the cost of prisons, um, to, to house them, to say nothing more about the recidivism rate. These are all things that are caused more by dad deprivation than by any other single thing. Mass shooters, school, school shooters. Um, in, in the 20th century, uh, there have been... Um, um, of, of the school shooters that have killed 10 or more people, every single one of them was dad deprived that we were able to track the family background about. Um, so the ISIS recruits, um, there's 90 some odd percent of the ISIS recruits are male, 10% female. Both the male and female have in common more than any other single thing, um, dad deprivation. Uh, the, um, and so we have you know, we have this, and I mentioned before that when I ran for governor of California and I spoke to prison populations, that 85 to 90% said that they had minimal or no father involvement. So if you want to reduce the size of government, you increase the involvement of fathers. You want to increase the size of government, you decrease the, the involvement of fathers. And so the, um, and this, this is what led the Florida legislature to pass unanimously by all Democrats and all Republicans in the Florida legislature, um, this father um, uh, crisis, the fatherhood crisis uh, bill. Is that uh, SB 1796? I forget the number of it. Um, I, think, I think that's what it is. If you guys want to go look it up and, and yes. familiarize yourselves. And, you know, or just do um, fatherhood crisis, Florida, um, you know, legislation. And that, I'm sure that'll come up. 
Um, but and then and then the second bill that is and that bill was signed by Governor DeSantis. Uh, a bill that is waiting to be signed by government Governor DeSantis is another bill of equal shared parenting. Oh, that's seventeen ninety six. Yeah, the other one okay, is yes. the other one is HB seven zero six five. There we go. Um, and the um, and so and, and you know if you want to encourage DeSantis to to sign the one that is um, that is related to equal shared parenting, that is you can't have increased father involvement. If you don't start with equal shared parenting, right? The, the fathers that contact me to fight for equal shared parenting, they have to be wealthy to handle to get to hire the lawyers. There's, and, and so we're undermining the wealth of the nation by requiring fathers to have to fight for equal shared parenting when we have so much enormous data, knowing that the children, both girls and boys, who do the best by far and away have four four must dos. One is equal shared parenting. Number two is that the father and mother live within about 20 minutes drive time from each other. Number three is that the children um, have uh, don't hear any bad mouthing from father to mother or mother to father. And number four is that the parents are involved in couples communication counseling consistently, not just emergency based. Mm -hmm. If you have those four must to must do's taken care of, your children are likely to do reasonably well, even in the face of divorce. Well, there you go. Uh, that that's all really good information. And uh, before we get out of here, let's hear this uh, the veteran thing you would want to talk about. Yes, a veteran. Veterans are astonished, as they should be, that they, if they manage to survive a war, they come back to being taken care of minimally or not at all to the point that veterans are far more likely to commit suicide after they come back from, from war than they are to die on the battlefield itself. To say nothing about the PTSD and the enormous need for help, to say nothing about the need for programs within the Veterans Administration to help men and fathers and mothers who come back together again in the same household how does how do they adjust to each other? How do they communicate about their differences? When dads learn to um, in the military uh, to be able to handle structure and to handle discipline, and they come back with the hope of giving that gift to their children, and the mother sees it as, as an insensitive dad, uh, that's an enormous um, communication issue um, for both the father and the mother to understand how to, to convert that into checks and balance parenting, where both parents are are taking care of each other. That said, that's the practical stuff. Here is the deeper stuff. When you have changed, when, when you have persuaded every generation of males to be willing to be disposable in order to be called a hero, you have given social bribes to males to be more admired and respected by being willing to die so others will live. When we have a child who we are training on the one hand to live and be loved, but on the other hand, to be willing to kill and be killed, and we, may know, we know that we may lose them, it is harder to psychologically attach, either as a parent or as a nation, with those people we feel that we may lose. Mm. Also, in order to, to be willing to sacrifice your life in war, 
you have to disconnect from your feelings about yourself, from um, to, uh, your, need, your need to be taken care of, because your job is to take care of, to protect, to die. Um, and you're called a hero if you do that and, and a coward if you don't. And so if, and, and you see all around you that women are not, mar they're marrying the officer and the gentleman, not the private and the pacifist. Mm. You begin to associate your ability to be loved with being willing to disconnect from your feelings. But in order to be able to handle the, so that you don't become a squeaky wheel in the war machine, and that's very functional for the effectiveness of the war machine. It is just not functional for your soul. Right. And so, and when you disconnect from your feelings, when you can't can cry, when you can't ask for help, people don't see that you need help and they don't have as much feeling for you. So what we've created is people who save, who have saved the country, our freedom, our world, from being in, you know, overrun by Nazis. Mm. And at the same time, they are among the least, we th say thank you for your service, but we don't hear the inner person, the fears of that person speaking up. So they're more likely to have PTSD without getting help for it. And then we have an administration, a veterans administration uh, that has never been that responsive to um, soldiers after wars. Once we were done with them, uh, they were disposable. And it's just one of the reasons I called one of my books, The Myth of Male Power, Why Men Are the Disposable Sex. The implications of being disposable and the way that impacts the way we protect and work with and rehabilitate veterans is something that really needs to be studied and understood hmm. uh, because um, that's what's leading us to be so conscious of the women's movement and women's issues and so empathetic to their issues and completely unaware of why why our sons are committing suicide at five times the rate of our daughters in their early 20s. Uh, why that suicide increases from equal to girls at the age of nine to five times that of girls at the age in their 20s. And hundreds of other things that are happening to our sons um, that we need to be aware of um, by partially being aware of the fact that when we tell our children, especially our sons, don't cry, um, it's difficult for people to know when you're feeling hurt and therefore when, how to help you. Sure. I mean, it's, uh, I, I feel like that's probably why most vets are more comfortable talking amongst one another than they are speaking with a, like a professional counselor or something like that, or certainly not with their family or their country. I mean, I, there, there probably is some degree of, you, you kind of mentioned it, uh, men don't want to seem like they need help or people uh, might assume that these veterans are strong enough to deal with it because they see them as strong. It might, it might be uh, the same as how a child sees their father, right? Um, exactly. As somebody that can defend them. And once that's challenged like that, there's an existential crisis involved there. I don't know if, I don't know if the general public would be, I don't, I'm not sure how they handle that situation in a, in a responsible way. Cause there's no, it's really difficult to jump into something like that if you don't understand the underlying factors. Right. And we don't do a very good job of, of listing and, and analyzing it, those factors. It, it has not been in the self-interest of any country um, to educate its boys um, for health intelligence up until now. 
for the first time in history, we're in need of a relatively small percentage of soldiers. And so therefore we can begin to focus on boys' health intelligence that includes the expression of feelings and fears um, in addition to their heroic intelligence. Heroic intelligence has always been an enormous tension with health intelligence. And so there's a balance. Um, becoming part of the military creates enormous strengths, enormous abilities to overcome barriers. Um, and any boy that has been, especially a boy raised by a mother, um, that gets, you know, that is that is uh, in the military usually benefits from it enormously, especially if they get involved with the Air Force or the Navy um, or the Army, where the death rate is much much lower than it is in the Marines. Mm. Um, and so there, there's so much work to do. So if if you're a veteran, take a and especially if you're raising a son, take a look at the the the, the part of the Boy Crisis book that deals with the the tensions between heroic intelligence and health intelligence and how to work with your son to have the best of both worlds. And if you're having tensions with your, your wife or your husband in, 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 in a marriage, um, please, for the first time in my life, I've been able to take the couple's work that I've done and put it on, um, I, I've been able to put it on onto uh, online so it can be viewed uh, very um, inexpensively. Uh, so if you're interested in that, just email me at warren at warrenferrell.com, warren at warrenferrell.com, and the Farrell is F-A-R-R-E-L-L. Um, then um, I will let you know more about that if you're interested in that. Or Absolutely. just go on my website. Yeah, we appreciate that. Uh, so the book is The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Audible. Uh, pretty much anywhere they sell books, you'll be able to find this one. We appreciate you coming on the show today. Um, tell everybody uh, where else they can find you on social media and stuff, or if it's just the website, uh, that's fine as well. Just tell, tell everybody where to find The website will give you the most information. Um, my twi uh, Twitter, I tw um, tweet some um, excerpts from The Boy Crisis and other books that I've written um, based on what's in the news. Um, so I think that's a fun, um, that's fun to follow also, but, um, by far and away, take a look at the uh, couples communication section of the website. Um, if you're interested in that or, and, and the, the best response I've been getting from men in particular, um, has been to, if you're not a big reader and researcher, um, take, just take a listen to the audible version of the boy crisis. It's, um, I, I read it, I read it myself and John Gray, the fellow who wrote men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Uh, did an excellent section on ADHD mm -hmm. and how to uh, how to work with prevent ADHD and how to cure it once it's um, set in uh, without using drugs. And very interesting. Well, we again we appreciate you coming on today. Um, this has been very eye opening. Confirmed some suspicions and I learned some new data. Uh, very good. So hopefully we can have you back sometime. Uh, Total pleasure. You are. You have such an intuitive sense of um, going right to the things that are really important. It's amazing. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate you coming, and uh, we'll see you guys next time.